0: continuing here with our study, a study of the end times, and thinking about how to introduce this morning's message. And I was uh, just reminded of my childhood growing up back in Massachusetts. One of the things that I like to do, I grew up in a small town, grew up in a country, small country area, and one of the things we used to like to do is build tree forts. And we would build all kinds of tree forts from scrap lumber and We'd save our uh, money, we'd collect bottles and cans and turn them in get some, get some money to go to the hardware store and buy a pound of nails and uh, we could we could nail virtually anything together and uh, and in the process of learning to use a hammer and nails, one of the one of the lessons that, that we learned was that in order to drive a nail effectively into a board, you had to hit it repeatedly. you had to hit it firmly, but you had to hit it repeatedly. the idea that you could just you know, really wind up and bang it once and drive it straight into the board was just not feasible. So it it yielded itself much better to a a repetitive series of strikes that would gradually drive the nail all the way in until it held. Why do I tell you that? Well, because we are looking at this this end-time event called the rapture of the church, and that's basically what we've been doing here is we've been driving a nail... And so instead of winding up with one mighty blow and, and seeing if we could drive it all away with one strike, we have been banging away at it. And hopefully in your hearts and minds, it has it has been being seated. And so this morning, I want to do that. I want to just whack it a few more times with you. In the process of doing that, I thought first that I would review. We are We are looking at 10 reasons, and if you want to stay within the Within the analogy, ten hammer blows uh, that, uh, that say to us a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. And uh, we have looked at them. It was uh, that a pre-trib rapture preserves the doctrine of imminence, we said. We said it provides a comfort to the church. Third, Christians not destined for wrath. Fourth, we believe it because of distinctions between the rapture and the second coming. Fifth, we believe it because of the purpose of the tribulation. Sixth, we believe it because it allows for children during the millennium. And I want to pause there. We finished with that last week. And as we were finishing, I was sort of getting the reader response, you know, the, the speaker response, evaluating faces. And my eyesight's not great. I can see about halfway. So um, those of you in the back, you're pretty much safe. But, but uh, those of you who are sitting closer, I saw some furrowed brows where, whoa, this, this, what is this new teaching that you're bringing to us here? What is this, uh, what is this man talking about? And so I wanted to, to come back to that. I don't want to get lost in it, I hope. But I wanted to come back to that because it is an important one. And, and in fact, if, if I were to line these up in priority order, I would see this one as one of the most important hammer strikes for the uh, the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. So this is not one that if you miss it, you go, oh, well, there's nine others. And clear there are. But I think this one's really important. And so I want to make sure that we take another whack at it and that you get a little better idea of it. So uh, in an attempt to do that, we have prepared some charts. So we have a chart for you. Some of you love charts. And uh, so we have, uh, we have made another attempt at a chart. And this chart is really slick and uh, it's really slick because it's not the product of my invention. I mean, not directly. It is sort of a, a piece of paper and a pencil and then handed over to Micah the wizard. And he created this incredible multicolored uh, fandango of a chart uh, <laughs> worthy of publication, I think, actually. It's really quite nice. So it's a great big chart. And um, I, uh, I didn't bring a pointer. That was that was silly. And uh, anyway, this chart is just to sort of locate you. And uh, what I want to do is uh, have you look to the left of it and you see the, uh, the box of the second coming. It's that white downward arrow there on the left side. And then just following that, you see the, uh, the judgments of the Gentiles and the Jews. You see that? The sheep and goat judgment. And then you see the judgment of Israel. You have believing and unbelieving Israel. Do you, do you see that? Have you located that? Good because now go to the next chart, because the next chart is, is a blow-up of that one section. Okay, The first chart is slick. It's got all kinds of things on it that are, that are useful for framing, but this one is, uh, is just focusing in on this particular section. So, this section entitled, Entering the Millennium, and this deals with the issue of populating the millennium. Now, think with me a little bit. In fact, what you want to do is open your Bibles to Isaiah 65. Let me turn you to Isaiah 65. In Isaiah 65, we are given a prophecy of Messiah's kingdom. And in that prophecy, in verse 20 of Isaiah 65, the passage is 17 to 25, but. Uh, But I only want to look at a couple of verses, again, not to get lost. But Isaiah 65 and verse 20, it says there that no longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. So people will be dying in Messiah's kingdom. You need to think about that for a moment. There will also be infants In Messiah's kingdom, verse twenty-three, it also says they will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. There will be children born in Messiah's kingdom. So, children who will die, children who will be born, and the the question that would that would rise in someone's mind is that if the resurrection precedes the entrance into the kingdom, which the Bible teaches that it does, then how could it be that those who have been resurrected into glorified bodies will be able to either die... Or bear children, because Jesus says in Matthew twenty-two and verse thirty that in the resurrection you will be like the angels, neither marrying nor giving in marriage, meaning you will not have children. So those entering into the kingdom, that is the church, right? The rapture happens before the tribulation. First Thess. Four. And the dead in Christ rise first, and we who are alive and remain are caught up in the, uh, to meet the Lord in the, in the uh, clouds, and we return with the Lord. 1 uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 15, it says, In a moment in the twinkling of an eye, we will all be changed. We will receive that body, that, that uh, immortal body, that glorified body, suited for the presence of the Lord. Well, that body doesn't reproduce, and that body doesn't die. Add to that... Flipping over to Revelation chapter 20, I'm creating the problem for you so I can show you the solution. Okay, I, want to, I want the tension. I want to feel the tension. In Revelation chapter 20, which is speaking about this, this earthly kingdom, Messiah's kingdom, the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year earthly reign of the Davidic king, It says, verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations who are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and the fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Well, if everyone in Messiah's kingdom has come into Messiah's kingdom in a glorified body by virtue of the rapture, which includes the resurrection of the in Christ the dead in Christ, then how could it be they would revolt or rebel at the end of Messiah's kingdom and end up being destroyed? And how could a multitude end up rebelling and being destroyed? Do you see the problem? Now the solution. The solution is because not only glorified Christians enter into Messiah's kingdom. In fact, there are essentially three groups of people that enter into Messiah's kingdom. It is the church... Age believer, it is the, it is the in Christ people who are resurrected or, and translated at the rapture. They enter when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom, they come with him and they enter the kingdom, but they enter it in glorified bodies like unto the angels. So no babies, no death. Two other groups that enter Messiah's kingdom, and that's the point of the chart here, are Gentiles, believing Gentiles, alive at the time of the Messiah's coming. That is, those who have lived through the tribulation. Not everyone dies in the tribulation. And among the Gentiles, there are are two kinds of Gentiles. There are the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left. The sheep gentiles are the believing Gentiles who, according to Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, right, have ministered to the Lord's brothers, and, and we went over that, and, and I believe it's the they're ministering to the Jewish people at the time of the tribulation. They prove their belief in the Jewish Messiah and are alive through the tribulation, and they enter into Messiah's kingdom. That's what he says, welcome into my kingdom. They enter in in physical bodies just like yours and mine. They are believers in physical bodies, bodies that can marry and have children, and indeed can even die. The other group, the third group that enters in is from among the Jewish people. At the time of the Messiah's return, he gathers the Jewish people. According to Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 33 to 38, he gathers them there in the wilderness. They pass under the shepherd's rod. He separates them as a a shepherd would separate. And he invites the believing Jewish people into his kingdom. The unbelieving Jewish people he judges, just like he judged the goats. So there are believing Jewish people who enter into Messiah's kingdom in physical bodies like yours and mine. You got it so far? So three groups in the millennium. They are the the believing church. They are the the saved Gentiles. They are the saved Jews. And all right, because someone's going to ask me a question, I'll give you the fourth group. It is the tribulation saints. It is the martyrs who died during the tribulation for their faith. They are resurrected and brought in as well. So if you like four, that's fine. But the point I want to focus on is that the believing Gentiles, the sheep, the believing Jews, and that's the chart. It shows them entering into Messiah's kingdom. They have babies. They have babies. And they repopulate the earth, which has been devastated in the seven years of horrible tribulation and outpourings of judgment. Now I'm uh, I'm not a great math major, and I hope I did this right. But I sat down and I said, two people who would have four children, and uh, and uh, for uh, thirty goes thirty years, and they have four children, and those four children live, they go thirty years, and they each have four children, and you see the progression. And after ten generations, if I did it right, there's almost three hundred fifty thousand people that come from two. Okay. So you math majors, you can tell me whether I did it right or wrong. But the point of the matter is, is that during Messiah's kingdom, which is a thousand years long, in which, which disease and war and all of that has been, has been eliminated because Messiah is here, reigning on his throne, the earth is vastly repopulated with descendants of the sheep who enter in and the believing Israelites who enter in. It is their offspring, not all of them, but some of their offspring. And I'm inclined to actually see it as the offspring of the Gentiles only, just because here in Revelation 20 and verse 7, it says he came out to deceive the nations. And the word nations normally excludes the Jews and speaks only of the Gentiles. So I'm inclined to see it as only the descendants of the Gentiles, and there are other reasons in Zechariah that I don't have time for. That basically, it is the descendants of Gentile believers in the kingdom. Maybe their great, 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 great grandchildren who don't believe. They don't believe. And even living in paradise with the Messiah on his throne and the access to all of the, of the, of the benefits of God in their midst, they rebel against him. And when Satan is released, they join this great rebellion. And, of course, God puts an end to it like that. And the great white throne judgment comes and so forth. Okay? So you get all of that? All right. Now you understand that. Now let me tell you why I believe that is a powerful argument for a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. And the reason is, is because if the rapture were to occur at the time of the second coming, after the tribulation then at the time of the rapture, everyone who believes is translated. They they receive a glorified body. That's what we are told. So if if Jesus were to to come to to rapture his church at the the second coming after the tribulation, then there would be no one left who is is in an unglorified body. Do you get that? everyone would be translated at that moment. And if everyone were translated at that moment and entered in the millennium to populate it, there would be no one in the millennium in a body like unto yours and mine, a physical body capable of having children, producing the necessary offspring to repopulate the earth and to rise up in rebellion at the end of the age. Okay? So there's how it goes. That's That's the logic of it. That's the argumentation of it. All right. So that's number six. Number seven. Number seven. Oh, man. Number seven. We believe and teach a pre tribulational rapture of the church because of the promise of John 14, verses 1 through 3. John 14, verses 1 through 3. So I want you to turn to John chapter 14 and let's just be reacquainted with the promise. Now, John chapter 14 follows John chapter th- 13. In John chapter 13, we are told, John the narrator tells us, in verse 1 of chapter 13, he says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, this is Thursday night, and that he would depart out of this world to the Father. Jesus is leaving the world and going back to the Father, he says. Go over to, to uh, verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Where is he going? He is going to be with the Father. You will follow later, he says, to be with the Father. That's the background. Chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is promising his disciples, and by extension through them, us, he is promising that he is going to prepare a place in the Father's house and to come and to receive them or take them to be with him in the Father's house. That's what he's saying. And that is to provide for them comfort. Now, it's important to understand that he that he does not say that the purpose of his future coming is so that he can be where they are, but so that they can be where he is. His purpose is not so that he's not coming for them, so that he can be on earth where they are. He is saying instead the purpose of his coming is so that they can join him and be where he is in the Father's house, a.k.a. heaven. Okay? You get that? That's important. What I want to do now is uh, have you keep your thumb here in John 14 and your finger or however you do such things in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Because what I want to do is I want to show you the similarity and I believe the identical, uh, speaking of the identical event of the rapture of the church in 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 to 18 and the promise of Jesus in John 14 1 to 3. In fact, I'll take it a step further. I believe the reason that believers are so discomforted in 1st Thessalonians 4 is because when their loved one died They think somehow they are going to miss out on the promise that Jesus has given them in John 14, a promise that is to provide great comfort. Therefore, Paul says, don't don't weep like someone who has no hope. It's not that, you know, you have no hope in a resurrection. No, that's not the point. Don't weep like someone who thinks you have missed out on the great promise of John 14. It's the same event. Okay, let me try to demonstrate it to you. I've got four similarities here. I just want to kind of show you quickly. So first, John 14 and 1st Thess 4 both involve a descent from heaven. Right? Jesus says in in, um, uh, verse 3 of John 14, he says, I will come again. I will come again. In 1st Thess 4, in verse 16, Paul says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven. So he's coming again from the Father's house. Paul says he will descend from heaven. Where is heaven? What is heaven? What is the Father's house? At the same place. Okay. So they both involve a descent from heaven. Secondly, the Lord Himself will receive His followers uh, unto Himself. So verse three of uh, John fourteen, He says. Uh, uh, I will come again and receive you to myself. I won't send somebody for you. I will come for you. Some people think that this is talking about Jesus coming to receive someone when they die, but that's not true. This is talking about a promise to come and to receive the believers to himself in the Father's house. So he says, I will come again and um, receive you to myself. And verse 17 of 1 Thess 4 says that we will be caught up, we will be caught up to meet the Lord. In the air. Okay? So we will be caught up to meet the Lord. I will descend to receive you to myself. We will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. All right? So we, he, Jesus, will receive his followers unto himself. Third, the purpose of both is that the believers can be where he is. Not that he can be where they are, that they can be where he is. So you see it in, uh, in John uh, chapter 14. That where I am, there you may be also. Now where you are, I may be. Where I am, you may be. Why do I come to get you? To take you back to where I am. And Paul says in, uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, and verse 17, we shall always be with the Lord. We shall always be with the Lord. Where is the Lord? The Father's house. Okay. Fourth, it's, it's given by both Jesus and Paul as a means to, to calm a troubled heart. It's given as a means to calm a troubled heart. Verse 1: Let not your hearts be troubled. Why were their hearts troubled? Their hearts were troubled because Jesus said, I'm leaving you. I'm leaving you. And he says, But let not your hearts be troubled. I'm going to come and get you, I'm going to bring you back to where I am. Paul says in First Thessalonians 4, and verse 18, the purpose of all of this teaching, that Jesus is going to come and he's going to receive both the living and the dead, uh, uh, believing living and dead, to himself, the in Christ people. Why? To comfort one another with these words. Okay, So the purpose is the same. It is to comfort the believers. Now listen, if the rapture occurred, if the rapture were to occur at the end of the tribulation period, then it is pointless to prepare a place in the Father's house. There makes no sense to prepare the place in the Father's house when, at the second coming, Jesus is descending to the earth to assume the Davidic throne in Jerusalem and set up his earthly kingdom. The pre-tribulational understanding of the rapture of the church, that it precedes the tribulation, makes far more sense out of the, pro- out of the promises given here. Okay, So, it's because of the promise of Jesus in John 14, 1 to 3 and the, and, the, and the fact that I believe it's teaching about the same event as the first Thess 4. Together, this is another reason, it's another whack on the nail, for why we believe the, tree, the, tribulation, the rapture of the church precedes the tribulation rather than following it. Okay? Are we all good? You wouldn't tell me if we weren't, would you? You're far too polite. Okay, here we go. Eight. Eight, believe and teach a pre-tribulational rapture of the church because of the silence regarding the church in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Because of the silence regarding the church in Revelation chapter 6 through 19 through 19. Now, Revelation chapters 6 through 19 are the stat section of of the book of Revelation that describe the tribulation, right? It begins with the breaking of the seals in chapter 6 and proceeds through to the second coming in chapter 19. So it's the seals, it's uh, it's the trumpets, and it's the bowls that occupy chapters 6 through 19. So here's what I want to show you. So go to Revelation And go to the beginning of the book of Revelation. And what I want you to see is that in in Revelation chapters 1 through 3, the New Testament term for the church, ecclesia, is used 19 times. 19 times. Over and over and over. I'll just point out a couple to you and you can check it on your own. Chapter 2, for example, in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, Then you get on to verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Right, verse 11. uh, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And it's just over and over and over and over again. Chapters 1 through 3 are written to the churches. There are seven of them. It is written to the churches. But following chapter 3, when the scene shifts to heaven... From that point forward, there is never again a mention of the church. All the way until we reach Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16. Where it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you of these things for the churches. And he closes it out. So. For the entire portion of the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19, which detail the horrible time of the tribulation, the church is absent. It is absent. The word is never appears. Now, this is not conclusive proof, right? These are, these are hammerwacks. But, but, I think it is more than just a mere observation of passing interest that if the church remains on earth during the 70th week of Daniel, that time of most intense and horrible outpouring of judgment, I think that it is more than a passing interest that it is never, ever mentioned by name. It is never, ever spoken of. Beyond that, uh, in Revelation chapter 7, Israel is specifically mentioned as being there. Through the 144,000, drawn 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Further in Revelation chapter 12, specifically Israel is mentioned as the woman, right, that the dragon is persecuting. So Israel is in the text and clearly mentioned in the text, both by name and by allusion, but the church is absent. It is absent. Also, I want you to note in Revelation chapter 13. That the church is absent from the standard formula in which it appears repetitively in chapters one through three. So Revelation chapter 13, verse nine, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. We're used to, to and almost would reflexively fill in the rest of what we would think would go in the verse, right? Let him hear what? Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches over and over and over again. That's, that citation is used, it is spoken that way in chapters 1 through 3. But when we get to chapter 13, it says, if anyone, uh, where, uh, chapter 13, verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear, Period. The Spirit's not speaking to the churches. Okay, So, argument from silence. I think it's a deafening silence. Number nine. Number nine. We believe and teach a pre-tribulational rapture of the church... Because it provides time for the Bema Seat judgment of the church. It provides time for the Bema Seat judgment of the church. Okay, we looked at the Bema Seat once. Uh, We'll look at it again to refresh you a little bit. So uh, let me roll you back first to uh, Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, pick it up in verse 10. Paul says, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. He is writing to believers at Rome and he is saying believers will appear before the judgment seat right we will stand before the judgment seat of God and we will give an account we will give an account second corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 where paul says specifically for we must all appear before the judgment seat of christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The judgment seat is the, is the Greek word bema, and that's where this comes from, B-E-M-A in the English. It's just a transliterated Greek uh, term, the bema seat judgment. It is a Greek term that, that refers to a judicial bench, so a place where the judge would sit to render his verdict, or, uh, more generally, to a place of judgment. It's used that way, same term, used that way in Acts chapter 18, verses 12 to 16. Now, it it is, uh, in the context of the Olympics, the Bema was a raised platform where the the, uh, victorious athletes would stand to receive their laurel wreath, their, their crown, their reward. They would stand on the bema and be rewarded for what they had done in the Olympic Games. And that is the concept here. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We should not fear the bema seat. The bema seat is not something to fear as a Christian. It is something to sober us as a Christian to be sure. But it is a place of reward. It is a place of reward. It is a place where the believer is recognized and rewarded by Christ for how we have lived our Christian life. How we have, have um, occupied ourselves as stewards of the Christian life, of the gifts we've been given. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God which was given to me, Paul says, like a wise master builder I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. The foundation of the building is Christ. If Christ is the foundation, he is the foundation of what? What is is Jesus the foundation of? The answer is, he is the foundation of the church is the foundation of the church they build we build upon the foundation of christ paul says my ministry is a ministry of building and it is a ministry that is built upon the foundation of christ that's why we don't preach any other gospel but only christ okay and so that's that's paul's ministry and by extension that's my ministry and that's yours you are left here on this earth following your redemption so that you might build on the foundation. You have a role to build. I have a role to build. We have a place, right? If you want to get even into this whole spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, spiritual gifts are given not to edify me, but to edify each other, right? That is for mutual edification and for the building up of the body of Christ. He uses the analogy of the body in 1 Corinthians 12, right? So we are here to build up the church on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. At the end of our lives, there will be an evaluation point. There will be an evaluation point. We will appear before Christ and we will be evaluated. And what we will be evaluated for is how we have invested our lives. What have we done with the life that has been entrusted to us? Have we lived morally according to the Word of God? That is a point of of evaluation. Have we we exercised our giftedness, both natural and spiritual, for the for the benefit and the growing of the body of Christ, the building up of of this edifice called the church? Have we been doing the right things? And when that evaluation comes, if we have been doing the right things, we are building with gold, silver, and precious stones. If we have been occupied in the things that aren't the right things, or for the wrong motives, then we have been building with uh, wood, hay, and stubble, and it will not last. There will be an evaluation, chapter 4, verse 5, First Corinthians. Same idea going on here in the context. He says, don't go on passing judgment before the time. But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. That is, we will stand there at the bema of Christ, and we will receive the reward. We will receive the crown for what we have done. And, of course, we'll cast the crowns back at his feet, and that's a whole another thing. But the point of the matter is, is that will be reward for doing well. And there will be loss of reward for doing foolishly. But we will still enter into the Messiah's kingdom. That has already been resolved at the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay, so is this making sense for you? So, a person's life could look really, really good on the outside. They could, be, they could be involved in all kinds of things that appear to be really good things and, and uh, really, you know, building up the church of Jesus Christ. But if the motive is wrong, then it's a wood, hay, stubble kind of thing. Okay? And so a perfect illustration of this is a Philippians. So turn to the right here to Philippians. And I want you to notice in Philippians chapter 1. Uh, Paul is uh, in prison in Rome. And he says, uh, you know, the people in Rome, they're getting bold. The believers are bold because of my imprisonment. So the good's coming of this thing. And he says, but some to be sure, verse 15, chapter 1, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So Paul is saying, hey, listen, there are people out there preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ, but their motives are all wrong. Their motives are all wrong. But Paul says, I can rejoice in that, because, uh, because Christ is being preached, and that's the most important thing. And uh, by the way, it, you know, in the long run, God's the one who sees the motives, and he's the one who can perfectly evaluate it, and he's the one who's going to give reward where reward is due, and he's the one who's going to withhold reward when it should be withheld. At the Bema seat, We good? So what does this have to do with the rapture? Well... Here's what it has to do with the rapture. When does the Bema judgment happen? I mean, you've got to chronologically stick it somewhere. Okay? It's got to be placed somewhere. So when Christ returns, we are told specifically there is the judgment of the Gentiles, at the sheep and the goats, and we are told specifically there is a judgment of Israel, the shepherd's rod, but this judgment here seems to fit really, really well when the church has been raptured to be with Christ during the tribulation. When, when he has come to take them to the Father's house. There at the Father's house will the, the dispensing of rewards happen for his church. The Bema Seed judgment. Okay? It provides a time chronologically that appears to fit really, really well for the Bema Seat judgment to go right there. Okay. If it's a post-tribulational rapture of the church, then it's just one more judgment to try to cram into a very short period of time. Because Daniel chapter 12 is really quite clear. And, and I, uh, it's not in your notes, but I'm going to flip you over there and, and uh, you know, do this, and probably raise ten questions and answer one. But I'm going I'm to be really bold or foolish. And do it. So I'm going to take you to chapter 12. And I'm going to take you to verse 11, chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12 is still speaking about the the end of time. The the return of Messiah to establish his kingdom. There is the resurrection in chapter uh, 12. 12 and verse 2. We know it's the tribulation at the end of the tribulation because of what it says in verse 1. And down to verse 11. From the time, this is what I want you to catch. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1290 days. 1290 days. Well, wait a minute. I thought there was only... 1,260 days from the time of the abomination of desolation, right? A time, times, and a half a time, three and a half years, right? Forty-two, 30-day lunar months from the the midpoint of the tribulation to the end of the tribulation. That's 1,260 days. Revelation speaks of 1,260 days. Why does the angel tell Daniel there are 1,290 days from the midpoint to uh, the Messiah's kingdom? That's 30 more days. And then notice what it just says after that. It says, how blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. That's 45 more. So what is it? Is it 1,260? Is it 1,290? Is it 1,335? Yes. Yes. It, it is the time of times and a half a time. It is 42 months. It is 1260 days from the, from the abomination of desolation to the return of Christ to bring the tribulation to an end. Following that, there is a 30-day window spoken of here. What happens in the 30-day window? Here's my guess. I think the sheep and the goat judgment. I think the sheep and the goat judgment happens in the 30-day window. Well, listen, this is a real-world event with real-world people. And the nations are gathered before the Lord, it says, in the valley of Jehoshaphat, in the valley of judgment. I think it happens right here. And the judgment of Israel happens right here in this 30-day window. Well, then what about the additional 45 days? Well, here's my guess. I think it happens in in that 45 days is that the administration of the government during the Messiah's kingdom needs to be organized and set up. There needs to be time for the bureaucracy of the kingdom to be established. Listen, you have to think physical kingdom. It is a physical kingdom entered through a spiritual door, the door of the new birth. Okay, Physical kingdom entered through the spiritual door of the new birth. There needs to be a bureaucracy and in the best of senses. okay, There needs to be organization of Messiah's kingdom, his government. I think it happens in this 45-day window. I can't prove it. I just think it makes sense, and I think it fits. So, as I told you, I just went out on a limb. Maybe I answered one and raised ten. So, if so, you can ask me about it later. Um, rats, I thought I had one more thing I wanted to say, but I can't think of what it is. Oh, well. It'll come to me. And we're going to come back to it next week. So, bang, 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 bang. I think that's nine. Okay? We're tapping it in. Okay? Think on these things. Follow the scriptures. Oh, I know what it was. (laughs) That's good. Some people are confused about the... They're saying... David, are you saying to me that that in this thousand year kingdom there are there are people in physical bodies like like mine who you know eat and sleep and and have to drink and, and breathe air, and if they don 't they die yep, and you also say to me that there are people in glorified bodies who no longer have to eat or or sleep or drink or or in order to sustain themselves they 're they're, they're like unto the angels they are, they are now immortal, yep well, how can you have two kinds of people living in the same world and I would say, well. It worked pretty well after the resurrection for a period of 40 days. huh? Jesus even ate. That gives me hope in the millennium, by the way. (laughs) Kind of thinking about opening up a millennial burger shop. I mean, there's a lot of sacrifice that's going on, right? Because Ezekiel, Ezekiel spends a long time talking about the temple and the sacrificial system in the millennium. And believe me, uh, it's real. And uh, all that sacrifice, you got to do some with the meat. So, so anyway, I just leave that with you, Father. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your word, and um, may you just enlarge our capacity to uh, both love it and to understand it. In Jesus' name, Amen.